less lesson and more storytelling. <clears throat> I'm going to tell part of the Christmas story and what it means to me. That's what happens in important times in our lives. That's what happens in important times in the church year. We, uh, we tell stories. We tell stories because stories are important, and Christmas time is important, so storytelling, it's what we do. So, we talk a lot about stories here at NRCC because we've framed it as meaning-making. We've talked about how so much of our uh, tradition's unhealthiness is rooted in the way that we tell our story. So, stories are how we make meaning. Stories are how we find meaning. Stories give access to truth in a different kind of way. Doctrines tell you truth one way. Textbooks tell you truth in one way. Precepts tell you truth in one way. Stories tell in a different way because stories are elastic and stories are expansive and stories are multifaceted. And so is truth. Truth is also elastic and expansive and multifaceted. And what stories do that preceptual truth doesn't do is access the truth that's inside you and inside me. Because when we tell a story, we have to go inside to find something. Doctrines don't do that. Doctrines tell you what you're supposed to believe. But since the voice of God is an interior reality, an experiential reality, since spiritual truth happens inside of us, stories become particularly important for the spiritual journey. So today I want to tell you part of the Christmas story and what it says to me. And when I do, my truth may be irrelevant to you. You may hear something from the story that is altogether different because that's the way stories work. That's the way they're supposed to work. That's how deepest truth works. What's in you is different than what's in me at any given time. And what we're looking for in the tradition is to access that which resonates with that is born in you. So the story goes like this. Mary gets pregnant at a time and in a way that she did not expect. Now, when my son, I've told this several times, when my son was in 10th grade, I asked him if he liked uh, math, science, uh, math class more or if he liked English class more. And so we talked back and forth. What are you, kind of a numbers kind of guy or are you kind of a letters kind of guy? And he said, oh, definitely letters, Dad, because numbers, you work and work and work, you get all the way down to the bottom of the page and there's an answer. One answer, you either get it right or you get it wrong. He said, over in English, you read a story and you talk about it and you think about it and you tell your truth of it and you can have say just about anything you want to say and if you do it right, it's right. And I said, I like that kid. That's true. So if we look at our story from a math problem uh, approach, then we're going to come up with a one-answer kind of approach to that. When we do that with this particular part of the Christmas story, when Mary gets pregnant at a time and in a way that she did not expect, if you're looking at it a one-answer and only one answer, the whole thing that comes up in our minds is, whoa, what? Virgin birth? What are you talking about? And lots of people, when they approach this story from a math perspective, do get hung up on that question. So I thought a couple of caveats before we start telling the story would be in order. Remember what George said a couple of weeks ago. The idea of a, of a baby born of a virgin needs some context because it had some context. It did not happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just something that showed up. And as a matter of fact, the idea of being born of a virgin was an important part of Greco-Roman storytelling. If one of their guys was important, two things happened. First of all, they awarded him the status of being a god. And second, they told a story about him being born of a virgin. It was always a hymn. 
It happened quite a few times. It happened to Plato because Plato was important. And so Plato was born of a virgin and the god Apollo. The same thing happened to uh, Romulus and Remus, the, the brothers, the twin brothers who founded Rome. The god Mars impregnated the Vestal Virgins who tended Mars' temple, and the boys were born and founded Rome. Now, in a fuzzy way that involved a snake and Apollo, a snake snake, not like Apollo's snake, in a fuzzy, snaky kind of way, it happened with Caesar Augustus as well. (laughs) He was the leader of Rome when Jesus was born, and Augustus, he too was kind of born of a virgin. And so at the time that our sacred texts were written, uh, virgin birth was a culturally recognized way of saying, hey, our guy is important. So when Christians said the same thing about Jesus and they did it inside the Roman Empire, the scandalous thing was not a spermless birth. That wasn't the big problem. The scandalous thing was that this bumpkin prophet from the backside of nowhere, living in a province, in a province that Rome had already dominated and already taken care and already showed their place, that this guy would rise to the kind of status that think that he could be born of a virgin, not you, friend, you are not qualified. It wasn't the issue of biology, it was the issue of status. So when there was a standing position in the heart of the Jewish nation, in the heart of these new emerging, this newly emerging sect, these Christians who said, our guy is important. He is every bit as important as the Caesar, every bit as important as the founder of Rome. There's something important going on. That was the scandal. So when we tell the story, it helps us if we look through the letter's lens instead of the number's lens. Same thing with the angel. Some people get hung up on that part. The math approach says, angel, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Come on now. So if that's your sticking point, think about it this way. The word angelos, from where we get angel in Greek, really just means messenger. So you can skip the wings part if you would like and think about it this way. A strong message was given to Mary. She sensed it of God. So those are the caveats. You're ready for the story. All right. Mary gets pregnant. And she is not married. She is still betrothed. She and Joseph are in the in-between stage of their culture. They were given to one another in marriage, but they had not yet had the party. Given to one another in marriage, but they had not yet gone to bed together. And so getting pregnant for them was quite taboo. Now, it wasn't taboo because a sexy peccadillo was a big problem in the culture. As a matter of fact, uh, at that point in time, dirty sex had not inserted itself into the tradition. That didn't happen until the second century. I'm doing a podcast, by the way, on rethinking sex education. It's quite interesting how sex got dirty, and it didn't get dirty out of the Bible. It wasn't, at the time of Jesus, a a dirty issue at all. So it wasn't because sex is some kind of a problem that this was a big taboo issue. No, this taboo was about protecting the covenant promise that holds together a family and holds together a society. Now, this particular society needed every advantage that it could have to remain internally strong because this particular society was beset by enemies to the north, to the south, to the west, to uh, in every direction they went. There was some great big power ready to just come and crush them. And so they needed everything they could do to maintain social cohesion. They needed to be together. So they took covenant making very seriously, and they took the breaking of covenant promises very seriously, which did not bode well 
for Mary. A society that needed to remain internally strong could be quite brutal in the reinforcing of the norms and mores. It certainly didn't bode well for the future that she imagined with Joseph. It didn't bode well for the baby that was going to be born. In fact, it boded quite disastrously because once she got pregnant, it was about to hit the fan. Words come to mind, words like squandered future or ruined future or no future. Being stoned to death was a distinct possibility. At minimum, she was in for a life of shame and a life of disgrace. So circumstances were anything but encouraging. She was in the deep weeds. So we tend to sanitize the telling of this story because we do it each year. But it was not a pretty story. It wasn't tidy. It wasn't neat. certainly wasn't lovely or wonderful. When we speak about divine life or we speak about divine light, this is not what comes to mind. This is the part of the story that we talked about doing as Advent unfolded. And the planning team assigned this part of the story to me. It's the Mary goes to visit Elizabeth part of the story, and it's not a pretty part. It's actually quite an ugly part. But it's an important part. I knew a family several years ago whose 16-year-old daughter got pregnant. And they were good people. They were church people. They weren't part of our church, but they were good people. And in their world, a pregnant 16-year-old wasn't how good family was supposed to work. So how do you go about being kind and loving? How do you go about doing the right thing when this thing that isn't supposed to happen happens? So they decided to send their daughter away to a home for young girls in another state and to tell everybody that she was studying abroad. It was a place for unwed mothers. It was a place that focused on two things. The first thing that they sold to the family, that uh, they sold to many families who were in that kind of turmoil, they said, we will save your young girl from the shame and the disgrace that your community will heap upon her. And their second selling point is that we will enforce and reinforce and then re-reinforce the importance of giving her baby up for adoption, which will give her her life back, and it will also give an infertile couple the possibility of having uh, children. And so the family (coughs) and this girl's home that they sent her to, they were all working with very good intent. Uh, It's a good chance that an adoption was the best possible outcome, but nevertheless, this girl... Uh, suffered a deep sense of feeling banished. She was sent away. So there came with that a deep reinforcing sense of shame, a deep reinforced sense of disgrace, humiliation, a sense of being set apart from the family. And I can imagine that Mary felt even worse because all of that had to be going on. But in addition to the shame and the disgrace and the humiliation, her culture stoned young girls who were unfaithful. So there's a very good chance that going to visit Elizabeth was about banishment. And it wasn't just about being banished because of shame. It was about being banished in order to preserve her very life. So now you and I, We hear this Christmas story, and when we do, it's cloaked with candlelight, 
and there are melodic carols that go with it. And so sometimes the gravity of the situation doesn't always register at a visceral level. But an unplanned pregnancy was a thing, a deep, grave, and serious thing. And it was not part of Mary's plan. This pregnancy really messed up Mary's plan. And years later, the plan was still messed up because when John was telling the story of Jesus 33, year late, 30, 33 years later, John chapter 8, you can read about it. Jesus was talking about being children of Abraham. And when he did, the power elite of the society began to mock him right there to his face and say, hey, we know who our father is. We are not illegitimate children. Mary's plan was still being messed up 33 years later because Jesus was still suffering, suffering the stigma of his illegitimate birth. But the thing that makes our Christmas story a really good story is the same thing that makes all good stories good. And that is this, that the dire circumstances in our story do not end up ruling the day. The dire circumstances do not end up ruling the day. Because there, in the throes of this very inconvenient pregnancy, Mary sensed a divine message, a deep interior sense of God hope, a deep interior sense of God promise. Hers was a sense that this pregnancy wasn't a disaster. All evidence notwithstanding, this pregnancy was not a disaster. Rather, it was the fulfillment the fulfillment of a dream, the fulfillment of a deep human longing, the fulfillment of her deep human longing, but also the fulfillment of the longing of others, of the human condition. But in light of the circumstances, that seems a pretty irrational, unreasonable hope. It was certainly more hope than the conditions would indicate. Circumstances bespoke despair. And yet our story has in it this God voice of hope and promise. Ours is a story that carries that dissonance. On the one hand, there are circumstances very dire. On the other hand, there is an interior voice speaking hope and speaking promise. Interior voice saying one thing, all the other voices saying something else. And later there's an angel, a messenger that comes to deliver to Mary, pay attention to the interior voice, a voice of hope. The voice of promise. I've had that. I bet you have. Circumstances that speak one way and a quiet inner voice that speaks another. I've had it with my finances. I've had it when we were newly married. We were first having babies. There are the finances shouting to me, this is dire, shouting to me the message of despair. But there's been a quiet inner voice as well whispering hope, whispering peace. For years, I suffered a debilitating depression for about a decade. And along with that, I was consumed with a deep ache of loneliness because my circumstances bespoke despair that I would ever be fit enough to have the kind of relationship that I would love and be loved in because I knew I couldn't bring this me into that kind of relationship. And so I doubted that I would ever be a fit to find someone to spend my life with. And that was despair, and circumstances were reinforced every day. But there in the midst of that, 
even in the midst of that. And some of that is, in hindsight, looking back, that voice of hope was there. The voice of promise was present. I've had it with my kids, circumstances that have deeply frightened me, nights that I've spent churning with anxiety, but also present has been this quiet voice of hope and promise. Now, by the time I had the kids, I'd been on this spiritual journey long enough to know that voice pretty well. So most often when I was in the throes of kid despair, I was keenly aware of the voice, and sometimes I would just get irritated at it. (laughs) I would say, really, you're going to talk about hope and promise now? Have you seen what these little are doing? (laughs) But it was there, the interior voice, the voice of hope, the voice of promise. I'm better at it than I used to be, recognizing the quiet inner voice. I'm better at it than I used to be, recognizing the divine voice. I'm better at it than I used to be, spotting these Holy Spirit nudges, seeing hope in the face of circumstance, seeing promise in the face of despair. And one of the main ways that I've gotten better is what struck me in this story. Circumstances like they did with Mary have pushed me toward other people, pushed me toward spiritual people, people who share the practice of listening for the interior voice. I have been richly, richly blessed in my life by having really good friends, spiritual friends, friends who were listening for the interior voice with the same passion that I was. So it has not been uncommon in my life during times where where circumstances have threatened to overrun me to have a friend hear the voice when I could not. It has not been uncommon for them to point me toward the voice so that I knew where to listen. Hear that, in essence, is what they were saying. Hear that hope way down deep. Hear that promise that is quietly speaking underneath your pile of trouble. So, my improved ability to sense the spirit, the voice, the voice of God, the voice of hope and promise, comes in no small part from having shared the journey with others, others who were also seeking that same experience with me. And now, counting up the years that I've been part of this spiritual community, As long as I have been here, most of the people on my journey who have served that purpose in my life, who have been that way with me, have been here. Many of them are you. In our story, Mary was banished by circumstances and had to get out of town. She went to Aunt Elizabeth. In my own life, I have been banished by circumstances, and there has been an Aunt Elizabeth there so many times in my life. I bet that Mary did not appreciate the circumstances that drove her to Elizabeth, but I bet in hindsight that she was very glad that they did. Because when she did, it was very clear that Elizabeth was a voice listener. Elizabeth knew that hope was afoot. The baby in her belly knew that hope was afoot. She was able to celebrate the hope and the promise. She exuded encouragement and affirmation. She loved Mary. She delighted in Mary. Here's the way our paraphrase said it this morning. Elizabeth knew deep down that the life inside of Mary was important. She knew that that baby represented hope and promise, and she knew that it was a time for joy. Elizabeth was a voice listener. Consequently, 
hers became a countering voice, countering all those other voices out there. Hers became a confirming voice in the face of a throng of discouraging ones. Hers was a voice of vision when all the other voices pushed vision down. So having trained herself to listen for the inner voice, Elizabeth was able to discern the whisper of hope and promise that showed up when Mary showed up. She was able to encourage, to uplift, and to orient Mary. As I was driving around this week knowing that this was what I was going to be uh, talking about, I began to wonder. I wondered in my mind how much contact Mary had had with Aunt Elizabeth in her youth. And given that when she was banished, Aunt Elizabeth was first on the list, it occurred to me that there's a good chance they had some history. I wondered that because when we tell the story, the Christmas story each year, one of the things that almost always gets noted is a remarkable capacity that Mary demonstrated. She was able to say yes to the movement of God in the midst of some terribly difficult circumstances, say yes to this divine hope, say yes to this divine promise, to say yes to a disrupted life, to an inviting God into daily life kind of life. Yes, I am here. Yes, I will serve. Yes, I give myself in service to something bigger than myself, despite the cost it exacts of me. Yes. That's such a notable feature in Mary's heart and life that when we tell the story each year, almost always that gets mentioned. Where does that kind of pluck come from? Where does that capacity for elevated vision come from? Where does the willingness to suffer in service to something bigger than ourselves, where does that come from? Well, it comes, our tradition tells us, from the interior voice. It comes from the greater truth that resides within us because the breath of God, the Spirit of God resides within us. But that, that comes from someplace as well. Because we've all got the breath of God, the Imago Dei. We all carry that breath. It's what animates us and makes us us. We are made, we've said so many times, of the same stuff God is made of. That's true of all of us. And yet we don't always express that. We don't always live that. How does someone tap that and live from that? And I think it comes from being immersed in spiritual friendships. It comes from being immersed in a community of people who lift us when we fall who point us to the divine voice when we have been deafened by circumstances, who point out for us the divine light when we have been blinded by the slings and arrows of just living this daily life. Now again, I have been richly blessed. I have been surrounded in my life by people who have helped me see when I was blind and hear when I was deaf people who've helped me move forward when I was immobilized by circumstances, to climb when I'd fallen, to get up when I'd been knocked down. Elizabeth did that for Mary. I've had many who've done that for me. So this year, the worship team was reflecting on Advent, reflecting on what our focus would be for our lessons and for our music. And as we did, it occurred to the team that it would be helpful to us to think about how God is expressed and how God is experienced through the lens of the feminine. That's why we're looking at Mary's life, and that's why we're looking at Elizabeth's life. And the question was brought up, how qualified Doug would be to talk during this time 
<laughs> and it was a legitimate question. <laughs> and so I went back into my mind the things that I know about the, the feminine and the divine, and I hit upon in my mind the, the Hebrew word Sophia. Sophia is a feminine word, and it circles around the meaning of the word wisdom. It's not an exact translation for the word wisdom. It actually has a much more textured, much more richly layered uh, meaning than just wisdom, but that gets close. Sophia is the capacity to see the larger spiritual truths and to integrate them into our lives and to live accordingly. Sophia is the ability to see these great spiritual truths, this profound sense of beauty, this profound integrative sense of perception and insight, to draw it from the divine that is within and then to reflect that in the way that we live. And our texts had the wisdom to say, in many ways, that mirrors the way that feminine life unfolds. And it is of God. So when Mary showed up at Elizabeth's doorstep, Sophia was in play. When Mary showed up at Elizabeth's doorstep, that kind of deep, integrated, nurturing, passionate kind of wisdom leapt inside of Elizabeth, leapt inside of the baby that she was carrying. It was this Sophia kind of affirmation and support and championing of Mary that leapt inside of her, that tapped into this way of God that is best reflected in our understanding of feminine reality. It was the capacity to touch the light that would help Mary walk in the dark. It was to help her be able to see the light when she couldn't. It was an integrated, deep knowing that God is in play. The movement of God is afoot. And informed by this dimension of wisdom, this way that we think of God that is deeply feminine, informed by that, Mary became, or Elizabeth became Mary's backer. She went into her corner with her, and she stood with her. That way of expressing God flowed from her, that capacity to give support and to give strength and to give affirmation and to give perspective, to give strength, this sustainable capacity for hope, to give it to Mary in the face of all of these prevailing voices that spoke otherwise. So getting ready for this lesson, that became my prayer because I've been Mary I've been Mary many times. I've sensed the inner whisper of truth and hope and promise, but even with it, I have been overrun by circumstances. That's happened to me many times. And Elizabeth has come to me many times. Elizabeth has come to me carrying that Sophia dimension of God, that capacity to point me to wisdom, to see the interior voice. That has happened to me many times. Elizabeth has showed up in my life. And so, Lord, I prayed. I rekindle my commitment to meditation. And I rekindle my resolve to listen carefully and obey tenaciously, to desire deeply and to pay attention, to work the circle. Because 
I don't want to just be positioned as Mary. I want also to be positioned as Elizabeth. I want to be prepared for the day when Mary is banished to my doorstep. I want to have within myself access to that dimension of God, that Sophia way of experiencing God, that I have that to give Mary when she shows up at my door. That interior capacity to see what the inner movement of God is doing in Mary when she's there. That keen sensitivity, that sense of hope, that sense of promise, that became my prayer, that I would have that as a gift to give because I accessed it. And I pray that to be so in me, and I pray that to be so in us together as a community. Lord, be it so in and among us, in Jesus' name, amen.